Hey everybody, it's Nick. Just wanted to let you know a couple quick things about this episode. One is that uh, we have Jeb Lund from Dave and Jeb Aren't Mean on this episode. And the reason I mention that specifically is because before and after his interview, we play a song from their podcast. And it is by Drew Fairweather, uh, who is also known as Crudbump, and is called Fuck You If You Don't Like Christmas. And the other thing I wanted to let you know is that my microphone had the gain turned all the way up during my interview with Jeb. So I am totally listenable but i do not sound nearly as good as jeb i apologize in advance uh but i think we had a really great conversation it wasn't in any way unusable audio it's just jeb sounds very nice and i sound uh less nice but we fixed the issue so the rest of the podcast sounds as nice as jeb does or maybe not as nice as jeb does because he has a much fancier microphone than, than i do um which i'm not holding against him anymore song you just heard is dog of war by the hell yeah babies which means i'm nick bond i am david gibb and this is how wrestling explains the world exciting episode today dave oh you know it nick you've been uh, you've been two-timing me and i'm uh, i'm excited for you to share the results with the people yeah i went behind your back and talked about wrestling with somebody else i really apologize i with somebody else who's partnered with a guy named dave i really it's really hard to take in i'm i'm biting my lip pretty hard here <laughs> uh he's of course talking about uh jeb lund who hosts Dave and Jeb Aren't Mean with Dave Roth. Uh, we will be getting to that in a minute, but I wanted to start by talking about the topic of this week's episode, which is why we have Jeb on, which is Hallmark movies, um, which are, how do I put this? Um, they've reached a kind of cultural zeitgeisty moment as these movies that uh, our moms or grandmothers watch uh for a bunch of different reasons, uh, both in terms of why we see that, because our moms, like I, my mom's watched thousands. I've probably watched hundreds in passing. It's one of those. And um, it's also kind of hit a place where people are doing podcasts about it, where it's getting stories in newspapers and in magazines about it. Uh, but basically what they are, are made for TV movies. Um, they used to be what they would call story of the week movies, um, which were started by ABC, which was uh, flagging behind the other networks at the time. So they started producing movies like made, uh, made for TV in the sense they had smaller budgets and smaller timeframes to do what they wanted to do. But these were movies that, uh, I mean, sometimes they launched careers like Steven Spielberg famously did Duel, uh, which is uh, one of the first made for TV movies. And that's kind of what helped him really uh, reach the status where people were comfortable giving him a bunch of money to make movies. Um, but it's something that everybody kind of touched on. I, I believe um, the day after tomorrow, is is an example of a uh, made-for-TV movie. And these are movies that were not quite restaurant-quality lemonade, as we like to say, but they were movies that sometimes featured formerly famous people. They were movies that were sometimes backdoor pilots for um, larger TV shows that didn't work out, so they would just release them on the, on the network. Um, but yeah, you've had experience with made-for-TV movies, I assume, right, Dave? Oh, of course. I mean, it, when I was growing up in the, the... Well, not growing up, but when I was first starting to really consume TV in, like, the late 80s and early 90s, 
on the weekends, especially on Saturday, like that's what was on most of the time was either some some 30 year old movie that the network had licensed or, you know, there, there would be the made for TV movies. They were still in heavy circulation when I was young. And, and just to throw out there really quick, because I'm the person who always has to mention the anachronistic fact is the made for TV movie is kind of like the grandchild of the like uh, television playhouse format, like in the early days of TV these like live teledramas, which were, which were like live to tape kind of play movies almost. They were one of the kind of first big things and first big tools to fill time in early television. So the, the televised movie has a long and rich tradition and, and Hallmark is definitely carrying the banner now in the, in the, into the 2020s. That idea of uh, hour eater, inning eater, in terms of TV production time, is something that wrestling has done for a really long time. And I think that's where you kind of get the basis of this like commodified version of art, uh, which wrestling very much is. But films have a tendency to like exist outside of, which we talked about in our very first episode, our pilot. They're much more of a... It is weird to commodify them in the way that made-for-TV movies do, especially when you look at... And this is uh, before Hallmark, Lifetime really became the the people who did the made-for-TV movies with uh, Valerie Burton and Nelly. And, and what those were, were they had uh, devolved more or less from movies where uh, were basically uh, movies that didn't get theatrical release to these kind of pop-up movies i guess you would call them where uh, uh one of the most famous examples of this is all of the movies that came out of the amy fisher story the joey but i was just thinking joey but joey but joey but your whole preamble sorry continue <laughs> and that that is an example of where it shifted it went from this idea of a movie that maybe didn't warrant theatrical release because the market wasn't there or was a backdoor pilot for a show or just something that was like of a certain quality that was there because there was no other outlet for it, but it was still worthy of be considered a movie where basically what you would have with these made for TV movies in the early nineties, before you start to see lifetime movies are these story of the week style tele teleplays basically. I'm just like, this is what happened. And isn't it scandalous? And then Lifetime was like, yes, and we know that we can make a bunch of money making these movies. So what you see is these, and what became known as Lifetime movies, uh, like Lifetime movies in the in the zeitgeist was these movies that basically um, a, a babysitter would end up stalking the husband of the main character and she was being what we would now call gaslighted by the babysitter about everything. And then it eventually turns out that she wants to wear the babysitter, the babysitter like wants to wear her life basically. Uh, and you see a lot more of these like extreme uh, babysitter from hell, uh, nanny from hell mostly uh younger women from hell that are trying to ruin your life and what they found essentially was that there was this huge market for it yeah definitely i mean the trashy original movie is like always an eye drawer like you think like that's how sci-fi really redefined themselves too like with the sharknado movies but the lifetime original movies and i, I say that in quotation marks because like if you had cable when I was in high school and you were watching after 9 p.m., you were constantly being deluged with, with ads for these lifetime original movies, which, as you said, were either ripped from the headlines or which were like the rejected letters from Penthouse, like you were saying. But it is very similar to wrestling, like you're saying that they 
they scratch a particular non-artistic urge that you're like looking for a story and you're looking for characters and you're looking for action, but you're not necessarily looking for something that's of a ton of quality, I guess. You're looking for something that, that that's going to kind of hit all the notes you like. These are these are like quick fixes. You see this transition from Lifetime movies as the thing in the culture that we know that our moms watch, basically. And then what it becomes is Hallmark becomes the like next step in that evolutionary process by taking on what had essentially happened to thrillers, which is what Lifetime movies were, is that they became these commodified for genres of film. It made it so that studios didn't really produce those kinds of movies the way that they used to, like uh, Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct. Movies like that stopped being produced for the most part, and there was still an audience for it. It wasn't that women need to see these things. It's just that is a type of movie that appeals to a certain group of people, men and women, and there is an audience for it because the film industry more or less stopped making it. And the same thing happened with romantic comedies. And that's where Hallmark came in. Hallmark, and and now Netflix, but Hallmark really became the place where you would see these kind of romantic comedy light versions of movies you had seen before. Um, Not necessarily in uh, they do, let's say, uh, You Have Mail, Direct, or Sleepless in Seattle would be a better example. You've uh, got mail, Nick. You've got mail. You have mail. My God. I can't, yeah, I can't. You're fired. You're fired. Oh, God. I can't make that joke. De- delete. Delete. Well, I can't make that. Someone's catchphrase, too. God damn it. That's how they get you. Uh, <laughs> you just become, you speak in sound bites. I watch it. I watch too much TV, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> actually, what I, I, I should use is, is Sleepless in Seattle. There's not that type of movie where there's actual, I don't want to say layers to it, but there's no surprise at the end of any of these movies. It is it's a pure distillation of the romantic comedy formula. And then it has this layer, this like sheen of innocence that permeates everything because it's usually focused around some sort of wholesome holiday like Christmas or Valentine's day. I think there's an April fool's <laughs> uh, version of the movie uh, next year. They're doing Hanukkah, which uh, Jeb and I get into, uh, but they're these holiday themed movies, which is another thing you don't see as much. You don't see it's a wonderful life movies like that nearly as much. It's this kind of manufactured version of foods we used to like that, like they bring back but it's not actually what we saw or what we ate when we were younger. It's this new version that's just the bare minimum of all of the parts. And it's done, it's manufactured in a way that's very commodified. It's very, uh, we make the movie, we make the idea for the movie in two days, write it in three days, and then film it in two weeks. Yeah, th- there's also kind of a Hobby Lobby vibe too. Like, have you ever been in a Hobby Lobby? Yes. Like, yeah, that like, you know, everything's nice and everything looks really cool. And you're like, oh, wow, they don't have stuff like this at any other store in town. I'm really kind of enjoying this experience. And then all of a sudden you start to notice that like a really heavy percentage of the stuff is religious. And then you start to notice that like uh, the music that's playing is, is a hymn that you like recognize from your childhood and stuff. And you're like, Oh my God, this is, this is really weird. And I think that Hallmark movies can have that same kind of insidious weirdness that Hobby Lobby does where you like, 
don't realize till you're in the middle of it that like this does not take place in the real world like this store is not in the rest of claremont new hampshire i've wandered into some strange other place when i went into hobby lobby and i think that uh i think that there's very much that same vibe with hallmark there's something that that rings true to the way that certain people maybe like to think of the world, but it's certainly not the real world of 2018. And what we talked about in the previous episode, uh, this idea of kayfabe that's very intentional, it is supposed to basically, and, and Hallmark in particular, is trying to get you to buy things. They're trying, they are selling the idea of holiday spirit, let's say, because they are a company that sells holiday cards. There is this direct end goal commodification process that you kind of don't see in a lot of other mediums because that's supposed to be hidden. But I think that Hallmark, what's kind of weirdly refreshing when you're looking at it from like a, a, a top, not top down, but like a 30,000 feet perspective, is this idea that it's it knows what it's, it is and it appreciates what it is. And it doesn't try to be something more than that while also having somewhat progressive aspirations, not progressive necessarily in politics, but like in an improving sense. Yeah, I, uh, I got a sneak preview of this talk before we started recording. And, and one of the most intriguing parts to me, you guys talk about it explicitly at times, but I think it's kind of an underlying push pull uh, underneath the whole conversation is this idea that these movies are in some ways really hopeful and like designed to be these uplifting positivity closure machines. But on the other hand, they're also really like regressive in some really important ways. And I, I think that you, you alluded to earlier how there, there's sort of this new critical eye or this new fandom that's starting to, to build around, around this genre. And I think that we're, we're coming to that reckoning of like, what does authenticity mean and is it important? So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of different levels to this, to this conversation. I mean, I'm excited for the people to listen. Yeah. So uh, we are going to just jump right in. Um, you'll meet Jeb in a minute. You know what time of year it is? It's Christmas time. I got to tell you something real about Christmas. Fuck you if you don't like Christmas. Fuck you if you don't like Christmas. I'm Jeb Lund. I was a former national affairs correspondent in Rolling Stone and a columnist at The Guardian. And way back in the day, I was an internet wrestling community columnist for Online Onslaught. Uh, Rick Skaya's concern after WrestleLine shut down and, the, uh, and CBS turned off the money. And today I'm also a co-host of Dave and Jeb Aren't Mean, a podcast uh, with David J. Roth of Deadspin dedicated to breaking down Hallmark movies. And it originally it was supposed to be kind of like a sportscastery way and uh, sort of like sports talk radio, but we just sort of gave into the gentleness. Oh, is that where the mad Mike and the Mad Dog impressions came in? Is, is that Was that part of the original sauce of the show? Yeah, no, it was literally um, Dave and uh, Charles Starr, who is one of the uh, the founder and, and one of the co-hosts of the Mike Dicta Mike Dicta podcast, we we watched the Horse Whisperer <laughs> for for a podcast because of that uh, the Nick Palmgarten uh, profile of Mike and the Mad Dog, where they were talking about how the um, Francesca and Russo got so into a rhythm talking about sports that they talked about other things like that, and they were in a hotel room. Wait, like Francesca always gets the nicest hotel room in town, and his hotel room wasn't ready. 
So they were sitting in a hotel room watching The Horse Whisperer and a producer comes in right as Robert Redford is breaking up with, with Kristen Scott Thomas and, and sending her home to be with Sam Neill. And uh, Russo watching it just goes, he had to do it. He had to do it, Mikey. And, and, and Fred Sessa, without missing a beat, goes, it was the right move, dog. <laughs> and, and, and somehow, like, we were just like, well, we should do that, but with Hallmark. Hallmark is the universe that you flee to when you realize that the real world is too much like Lifetime. Lifetime is all about the way in which you are in danger. You know, that, that affable gardener that you hired, well, he is going to plant your family in the ground. Uh, that, that charming, smiling man you met on the street, he's going to follow you home. That firefighter who rescued your cat he's going to wear your skin. In Hallmark, you meet that nice firefighter. It turns out that he flips houses. You get evicted from your apartment because you had a cat and you just move in with him for no real reason. Like you haven't kissed, you're not dating. He's just like, come, come live with me. And like pretty soon you're stringing the Christmas lights and going to Lowe's with him to pick Christmas, uh, to pick kitchen tiles, <laughs> which is a real plot, by the way. And that, uh, that's a movie starring Superman Brandon Routh. Who, I, okay, Superman Returns is a, a movie I really enjoyed, so I might actually catch up on that. Yeah, it's the, it's the Nine Lives of Christmas, and it is actually like one of the substantially better ones. But I mean, right in the middle of the plot is this presumption that the world is so safe that, you know, you oh, you don't have a place to live? Well, just just move in with the firefighter. That, that'll be fine. Uh, and yeah, I think that that presumption of safety, even less so than innocence, is, is something that comes through in uh, what I, I like to call, and I guess you like to call, the 9-11 didn't happen thesis, which I came from your show, did not come from you or Dave, but it came from one of your guests. Well, funnily enough, and I didn't plan it this way, it's actually uh, Sarah Kate Wilkinson was a guest uh, on our show, and we finally actually did watch that movie, The Nine Lives of Christmas, starring Super man brandon routh because that is the one it was it was on recently and we said well shoot we should do it because it's her favorite but that is what she was watching when she made that discovery she dated a couple of firefighters and if you've been to a firehouse in america since september 11th there you will see a poster of something very very grim and grisly happening at ground zero and this movie takes place, a substantial portion of it takes place in a firehouse, and there is no indication that 9-11 happened. And then when you see the other movies, the presumption that it didn't happen starts to make sense. Like uh, uh, there was a Candace Cameron movie where she, uh, I think it's called A Christmas Detour, where she's supposed to go to meet her like very wealthy heir fiance in New York. Her flight gets diverted to Buffalo. But on the flight, she carries on like a giant easel onto the plane and her boarding pass is written in Comic Sans. <laughs> and like, there, there are no Sky Marshals. There's no TSA. Uh, people accidentally board the wrong plane all the time. That's a familiar plot point. But like all the, the sort of like attendant security theater that we've become accustomed to in the post 9-11 universe just isn't, it's not there. And partly that's, I mean, obviously these are like 75 minute movies once you take out the commercials they don't have time to just go like well and, and he's in tsa for a while but but like kind of taken in an aggregate you could argue well it just didn't happen and that would kind of make sense for the overall schema of the the movies which is like this is a place where badness doesn't really exist i mean even the bad people are mainly just sort of irksome yeah they're not like actually sincerely evil they don't do anything bad they do things that are like gauche or like odious they remind me of uh on gilmer girls when they complain about lorelei's parents like those are the type of evil people that seem to be in most of the hallmark movies yeah it's like mom is so overbearing she keeps inviting me to these really nice dinners and expecting me to talk <laughs> to her and you're like oh the pits yeah. <laughs> 
And and it doesn't seem to be, though I think it has something to do with it, it does really seem to be, and you mentioned the length of them, a, a function of wanting to have a convenient narrative. And there are ways in which that's an emotional thing, but it's also a structural thing. And I think with not having a 9-11, it allows you to not worry about so many things, not just security theater, but the larger ideas of uh, different <laughs> there being animosity politically that's a function of 9-11 happening there's a lot of things that are shorn from the hallmark universe that i i think are done explicitly not just to like maintain kayfabe for lack of a better term but just to make it easier to write these things because they're very cookie cutter uh fa- almost factory style produ- production right yeah, no, they, they film, uh, like, they have a very brief shooting schedule. They have a very brief editing turnaround. I mean, it, we Dave and I, uh, my Dave, right? Um, but we tend to joke about how, you know, some of these, they start filming them before they're, you know, finished being written. And just during the commercial breaks, the writers are over there furiously scribbling to get to the the final kiss moment. Um, it, you know, that, that quick turnover is part, I think, of just an in, in aim to... Uh, to sell kind of Christmas and holidays. I mean, you, you, this is a Hallmark product. What does Hallmark do? It sells you greeting cards and it sells you home decorations germane to certain holidays that are meant to engender feeling good. And because of that, there's sort of a begged question to the structure of like, everything is going to ultimately make you feel good. And that that has lots of downstream effects. Like we were just saying, you can't really have a villain because, you know, a world of villain, it, a world in which villainy exists is a world in which you're not going to be very happy. And you're trying to escape from that by having a world of festive decorations and people who are who remember that, you know, these celebratory moments are coming up and greet each other in celebration and are all sort of on the same celebratory page. Uh, And so, like that format, I think, you know, that that factory aspect is just being bounded uh, by the the you know, you might want to say like a consumerist impulse, but like just a a tonal impulse of like, we're all enjoying ourselves here. And so as soon as you, you begin with that, you start boxing out certain plot and, uh, and character and and reality elements that are going to be non-compliant with happiness. Yeah. And I think that uh, sometimes you see that with wrestling in terms of, they both remind me, both Hallmark movies and wrestling. I've written this uh, I've described wrestling as if sports are a weighted number machine to which we apply narrative, wrestling is a weighted narrative, random narrative generator that we apply, like we can apply statistics to. Like it, <laughs> they randomly just keep generating these stories and they have different points of inflection where they like change out certain things, but it's just permutations of the same kinds of stories over and over again and then we can go well in the the last 13 hallmark movies uh 9-11 has not happened in 12 of them (laughs) like like there's this idea of if you keep doing the same thing over and over again it almost becomes like craftsmanship over actual like artistry or creativity and i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing i think a lot of hallman hallmark a lot of Hallmark movies are, are yeoman's work. Like I, I, but I definitely feel that there's this idea that, and it's something that also happens with like um, television, uh, late night television show writers, where it's because you're constrained by time, by budget, by a lot of things, it becomes this uh, this commodification of the stories in a way that like harms the long term uh, viability of the 
the genre or like the the medium i i don't know if you'd consider consider hallmark movies a genre or a medium but like wrestling is obviously a medium it's no it's an it's an interesting question i'm not i'm not, I'm not sure i fully follow you um i'm just to what you said some to reply to a bit of it i mean i think you know like if you look at rick flair like nothing that rick flair did or does was on paper like especially brilliant right you know knife edge chops woo you know, the uh, figure four, you know, some struts falls down, any flops, whatever. I mean, what what is that necessarily different from the in, in terms of like what Chris Jericho did or what uh, Chris Benoit did? Uh, it's just variations in intensity and execution, but you're still using the same kind of basic move set. And in those little elaborations, you can see some artistry come out. I mean, there are a couple of people if you see their name on a Hallmark movie, you're like, that's actually going to be pretty good. Oh, so the, the, you do think it gets more, it does get into that artistry where it's not just, I'm doing this one thing really well over and over again. It's, I can kind of, in this exist this specific space, kind of push the boundaries of it without necessarily like looking, trying to be edgy in a Hallmark movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that... You know, I, I think whether it becomes artistry, like obviously it's going to come down to the viewer. And some of it is just having a sense for tone. I mean, like so much of what makes Ric Flair's psychology work, right, is knowing the moment to do when he what he does. Uh, knowing the pause, like the audience expects the woo. And before he throws his head back, he kind of looks and you know it's coming. And that's what makes it electric when he throws his head back and lets it out. And, and so there are a few people who I think tonally kind of read the room or read the beats and delivered these things that are otherwise like, you know, paint by numbers. I mean, and so many wrestling matches are that way, you know, like five knuckle shuffle, you can't see me, boom, 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 you know. Uh, and, and So do you think anybody that can, uh, have you watched a Hallmark movie, I guess would be the ultimate question, that you felt transcended its... Uh, like its aspirations it actually became a movie that hit you in a way that it wants to without actually trying to do in other words its goal is to get to the point where it like hits you at a certain spot and doesn't necessarily go deeper but have you had one where you're like god damn that actually like made me feel something the way that like a really great wrestling match even if you know everything's fake and 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 everything's in kayfabe it can still make you like have that emotional like uplift of like, I saw something that transcended what I expected and hit me in an emotional way. Or are these for you, especially somebody watching them over and over again in a crit with a critical eye towards them. You kind of have that completely washed away from you in terms of that emotional connection to what you're watching. I mean, I think it is still to a, cer a certain extent, apples and oranges. Cause like, right, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, when Eddie Guerrero won the title at like, I think it was no way out in 2002. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds about right. I, I remember walking outside. There was a I would always go watch it at this bar, the, the pay-per-views at this bar because, you know, it was cheaper just to go to this bar. And there were people there who were definitely like smarks. Right. And, you know, the smart money was that he was going to win. And and so, you know, like you go in there with the anticipation that he's going to win, whatever. The match happened. I went outside to have a cigarette and I'm watching these guys come out and, you know, the hardcore nerdy people about wrestling and I was hardcore nerdy people about wrestling, but like tears on their face because one of theirs, it finally happened for them. And there was that release. So that even if you knew it was almost overwhelmingly likely that he would win, there was always the chance that McMahon or, or triple H or somebody could whip the rug out from under you. And he would lose at the last second because that, you know, it was, had happened so many times. 
like all the times that somebody was like, oh, you know, trip, no way Triple H is going to win this match. And of course he wins the match, right? Um, there, there isn't that uncertainty at the end of a Hallmark movie because they're going to kiss and they're going to get married or they're going to be on the road to get getting married. You're watching for that certainty because that's the comfort. But within that framework, yeah, there, there have been a couple where the execution has been creditable and artistic enough that you're like, that was thoroughly satisfying. And so like our five-star rating is, is like, this could just be a family movie. Uh, and we watched one with um, the, the, the Duchess of Sussex, <laughs> Meghan Markle, and, uh, and also starring Terrell Rothery from Stargate, if you want to get to your Stargate crossover. Um, but it was, it was really good. I mean, like within the boundaries of, of what it's attempting to be, um, you know, they, they, it was, you know, five stars out of five. It, it nailed everything it, it wanted to do. Also, weirdly, I, I will say, like, just as an aside, there were a couple of like winking nods to the format that kind of clunked in a way that whenever wrestling tries to be self-aware about its own structure, you're like, no, you don't. You're too flimsy and artifice to try to poke holes in yourself. Right. But yeah, I mean, there, there is that, there have been those ones where you're watching it and like, I'm not going to cry because, the unexpected and seemingly impossible happened like what the very possible and inevitable always happened. <laughs> but i was glad for the trip i also wanted to talk about the idea and this is something we kind of touched on earlier of the ways in which that safety is reinforced by the people in the movies uh, and it reminds me in some ways of the Truman show where like, there's this idea that the people that are there that aren't the stars of the movie exist entirely as a function of the main character's existence. Like they are only there to be like sounding boards for the main character or a Greek chorus, or they're kind of, they're not people in a movie. They're just there to reinforce the ideas. And they do that through like, oh, do you really want to move back to the big city and, and stuff like that? And I feel like that has a lot of the same role, like crossover in terms of role with commentators uh, where they're reinforcing the morality of the universe that they're in. Uh, do you do you see that in a lot of these movies or do you see that the acting force is actually like a character in the movie? Because it feels like it's about 75 25 where like the outer forces are trying to get these two main characters together and then sometimes it's the the guy usually it seems trying to be the one to get the main character who's a female in this case i don't think they have a they've had a gay an lgbtq hallmark movie right i'm not no <laughs> they're, they're strongly hinted like gay best friend but they've never even opened the door to just admitting that the best friend is gay yet to the best of my knowledge. Do you feel like the angel has that role or do you think it's just something that they throw to the, the, like the peanut gallery of the movie? Well, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's a good analogy. I think maybe broaden it a little bit um, because I mean, part of the structure of this is similar to, you know, booking an episode of raw, right? Uh, you've only got a certain amount of time. In this case, it's a two hour movie, but after commercials, it can be only one hour and 25 minutes, maybe sometimes one hour and 15. I've seen them cut even more. Um, and, and so in order to explain the stakes, you can't really let events play themselves out in an inorganic way. You do have to just sort of at some point shove the narrative forward in the same way that an announcer saying like, oh, you know, he's determined to, to get this back or like, oh, you know, it's despicable that this person's doing this. Like you, you've got only maybe four minutes in the ring for, let's say, a lower tier, a lower card 
uh, match in order to kind of like increase those stakes. You do need the commentators commenting on it in the same way that like if you've got two people in a Hallmark movie who've got to get together by the end, we all know they have to get together by the end. And we know that it's inevitable that, you know, this, you know, in the same way that like Kane's going to win this squash. We know that this is going to happen. We somebody has to heighten the, the 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 dramatics or the the emotional involvement investment along the way, and so yeah, there is that kind of chorus of people. But I think part of that is just expediency. I think if you were to do, like, I think you were to do a fuller analogy to wrestling, it would almost be like a combination of um, of the commentators and then also maybe like having a stable in the same way that like. DX only existed a lot of the time to just be like, well, what do you think, Triple H? You think that's a good idea? Well, yeah, Road Dog, I think it's a good idea. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna go suck it. <laughs> like, you know, just, they, uh, just a way to kind of like say what is assumed in a in, in an expedient uh, expository way. Is that something that you see ever uh, actually being useful? Like, have you seen a movie where the there's a compelling case made by this this peanut gallery, the, the the DX of the movie, that actually is not just please adhere to the commonly agreed upon moral code in this storyline, or do, like do they ever have any interesting nuance to the character? Because I think that's one of the main problems with professional wrestling when you have these stables is you have characters that again only function as sounding boards for their characters do you ever see any characters that kind of transcend that is the gay best friend ever able to transcend that or do they just become is there anything in hallmark movies that isn't just a pile of cliches stacked on another pile of cliches with an overcoat Yes, but with a big qualification, right? So I think, I mean, and this is where we get a little more into the apples and oranges thing again. I mean, you know, with with, with a Hallmark movie, right? You, the plot is you're watching to see these two people get together and you're never really going to see this plot again. I mean, they don't do sequels unless the people don't get together. So like they have a franchise with Jack Wagner and Josie Bissett of Melrose and Days of Our Lives. I can't remember which one he was on, right? Or General Hospital. And they're up to like four movies. Well, they don't get married in the first three, so they can kind of keep doing them. And so, but the in the, the the supporting characters kind of keep recurring, and they they deepen as they go along. But for the most part, like it's a one and done. So if you have an only two dimensional character who's just sort of like going like, yeah, you should get married. It's what the Lord wants, you know. Um, like it doesn't really harm anything long term. I think like the the problem when you you see with professional wrestling and stables like that, there's always that one underdeveloped guy. You know, it it they're a useful um, narrative function within the purposes of the stable. Like, what does evolution want to do, or you know, what is like you know what a DX want to do, or you know what are the horsemen want to do. Um, and within that, they're very useful because they get the the subtext out and make it text, and they get they 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 make the ex the exposition a literal thing that the audience can engage with as an update in case they didn't see the previous episode. The problem for them is that then they have to go out and have a match. And if all of their screen time is dedicated to the furtherance of the, the stable wide narrative, which is usually like, you know, the alpha dog narrative within the stable, then they're harmed. But like, there's no real harm in a Hallmark movie. If you're, you're the sister who's like, whose life is kind of fucked up, but you know that this is the right guy for your sister. You know, like you're not going to show up the next week. You're not going to be in the next movie and nobody's going to go like, well, we don't take her seriously because her life's fucked up. You know, her her fucked up life ends at, when the movie does. I mean, there, there's certainly been 
thoughtful and interesting and funny ones. I'm, I'm thinking again of that Meghan Markle one where you had a kind of peanut gallery of, um, you know, a sister and a brother-in-law and a mother uh, it, who were kind of giving good comic relief. None of those people could have sustained a follow-up movie in one case because they were already paired off and in one case because one person was already too old. You know, old people are involved in the Hallmark universe, but they're never the lead. Um, so like you can- Because gross, who wants to feel any love for old people? I don't, that would be disgusting. Yeah, and and also if you're, an, if you're <laughs> yeah, old people revolt me and, and no, no. it's like the old Conan O'Brien rant, like another old person wasting a young person's time. But, you know, so much of it is projection. You know, you want to you want to imagine what it was like to fall in love. You don't want to imagine what it's like to have hip problems. So the aspirational <laughs> characters aren't generally the senior citizens. The senior citizens are there to kind of remind you how great it is to not be one. You just mentioned that characters don't reoccur, but there's essentially that that wrestling style like troop. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, no, no, no you're right on. Like, um. In fact, I mean, if you've watched like almost any USA original series or anything that was filmed a lot in Canada, so like old Jump Street, first three seasons of the X-Files, a lot of later seasons of the X-Files too, um, any of like any of the Stargates or like Continuum or, you know, Degrassi or whatever, you're going to see the same people over and over because they're almost all filmed in either Vancouver or near Hamilton, Ontario. And so it's just a lot of like Canadian good Canadian character actors who usually are doing a better job than like whatever kind of washed up American winds up as the lead. Is that uh, fun for you to see the different people and the different things? Cause I know like watching uh, right now we're doing an Arn Anderson episode and I am watching every single Arn Anderson match on the network, which is like 400 matches, but it's fine. I'll plow through uh, anything for the fans. And uh, it's fun to watch him be Marty Lundy when he first starts out and then become Arn Anderson and put on the most ridiculous hat you've ever seen in your entire life. Uh, and and that's fun for me and i i would assume as a as a wrestling friend for a long time you did have that like oh shit i remember this guy from wcw and now he's in the wwf like what the hell is he doing here do you get that kind of that little twinge of recognition but uh, that was the first part and the second part is does that ever work to the disadvantage of the movie where you're like last week this was the charming friend and now they're the asshole villain or not even asshole i wouldn't even go that far in a hallmark movie the uh the non uh conformist villain in this movie do you, do you ever have does that ever take it out or is it just oh it's another guy he's doing a hip toss in this movie instead of a light drop <laughs> I mean, it hasn't gotten to the point where there's like an obvious takeaway. I mean, because I'm waiting for the moment when, you know, like the the avuncular, really nice senior citizen guy is too shy from the third season of the X Files. You're like, oh yeah, you're the guy who knew about like 15th century Italian poetry and you sucked all the fat out of women, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I'm sure that's gonna come. And if I if I knew more about like Canadian based TV series, I would probably have way more of those moments. I mean, there definitely has been a point where you're like, oh yeah, you're that guy who kills so and so in. <laughs> you know, in like a Stargate episode, like, or like you were the ghoul ruled piece of shit or whatever. Um, but like, for the most part, it's kind of, I, I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a rep theater where they kind of have the same pool yeah. of actors. There was a really cool, uh, in the South. Uh, so I, I grew up in, I went to high school in Northwest Florida. We would go up in the summer to see the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, which is actually really great Shakespeare Festival. And there were a ton of people who were in Law and Order in it. You know, they the kind of guy who like finds the body <laughs> in the the open, you know, before the credits. And, Always uh, talking and with their friend. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, or they're, they're like fishing down at the pier and you're like, why? Right. You know, they find the floater. <laughs> so, you know, you'd see those guys and it, you, you'd have a moment of like, oh, cool. That's a guy from law and order. And then they do a great job as like a middling role, but then you come back the next summer and maybe they had a lead and, and building on that year over year, you would get a chance for everybody to kind of eventually maybe hit their stride. So like maybe they, they didn't get to show off as, um, you know, I'd like to do a wrestling analogy. Like maybe they just weren't that compelling as a tag, uh, like a tag partner. But if they, once they finally got to go in the cruiserweight division and maybe do a little bit more chain wrestling and do some like rope work, you're like, Oh, that guy, that guy mm-hmm. has it. And so there've been a couple of them where there's um, kind of conspicuously much like Fox news. There, there are a lot more blondes in, in Hallmark leads and uh, women with dark hair are invariably just sort of like non evil, but bad. <laughs> and so every now and again, you get the thankless woman who like just gets roasted for no reason in one movie. And you're like, God, she was like way better than the lead. And then you get to see her like, you know, a year later, she's the lead in something. You're like, finally, you know, she gets something back. I think it's funny that you mentioned uh, blonde women um, because it seems that a seems like Hallmark movies have a type if it's not Meghan Markle. Um, and I think that uh, this is something we talked about uh, off off air, as it were. Uh, you mentioned that both Hallmark and the WWE uh, begged questions about the existing market, and I think that's kind of what you were talking about, right? That that they feel as though they need to fill the the lead role in these movies with blonde women who fit a certain body type and a certain expectation of what an all American girl is. And, and that you think that's changing, right? Yeah. I mean, so in the literal, like obvious way, I, there was a press release that came out, I think this week that for next holiday season, they're going to make a couple of Hanukkah movies this season. They actually made their first, uh, I think a couple of movies where, uh, you know, people of color were the leads rather than usually if you see a black person, they're just the angel. They're just there to be like the Michael Clark Duncan kind of angel. Like you're the person who is just supernaturally kind to a useless white person to make their life better. (laughs) And so you're seeing that, but I mean, what I was thinking of, because, you know, I knew we were going to do this and I was trying to think of, of wrestling analogies was, you know, Vince McMahon has been in charge of personnel for like 40 years. And we all know that Vince has a big guy fetish. And that kind of still makes sense when he takes over WWWF and then runs it through the 80s and the 90s, right? When we, when we think of wrestling, we generally think of like these hulking uh, physical Literally hulking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something, brother. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Sorry, yeah, I just can't help it. I, I live in Tampa. I oh. get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> we usually just say that doesn't work for me brother anytime we mention because uh, <laughs> that was his line was anybody oh we're gonna be it doesn't work for me brother <laughs> shutting down gawker that doesn't work for me brother uh, but, uh, but like that, so there is a kind of like intuitive there's like a horse sense to it right you know people perceive of wrestlers as being big so we just kind of keep doing that and you, you you have a slow erosion into that of like people like bret hart and Shawn michaels and then uh, you know, uh, Eddie and, and, and the, the Canadian Chris's and, and even like to a certain extent, Stone Cold, who wasn't like, you know, he was never a warrior like specimen. He, he had the, he had an aspirational gut for a viewer like me. Right? <laughs> and Amen, brother. <laughs> right. But, but the, the, the begged question at the heart of wrestling was like, well, people want to see big guys. And then slowly, but surely we just got this, this, you know, 20 year kind of, you know, avalanche of, of market data saying, no, people want to watch Daniel Bryan. 
You know, they they don't mind. Or the women's the division. They and even that's become a much more diverse place. Like if Nia Jax and Charlotte and Becky and Sasha and Bailey and Naomi, you have a bunch of different women uh, of women of color mixed in with legacy cases that are very talented, but still like have a legacy. And you have people that just came up. You have uh, people from outside the country. There, there's a very wide range of people on the in the women's division i I think is it's what we talked about actually uh which we talked about two episodes ago for the listeners to go back and listen to is is that that is something that's definitely happening in terms of the women's division is there's this big uprising of of women's fans not just women but also male fans that want to see women's wrestlers because they're tired of the boring bullshit that the men do Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember railing about this in a column, like, because I thought Trish Stratus matches were not obviously as technically gifted as, as the male wrestlers of the time, or even compared to, you know, quote unquote diva wrestlers now. Right. Like, you know, even though it was not as, as proficient, it was, it was serious. And within the, the, the kind of realm of, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of, um, you know, when you you asked me to be on this, I went back and I was reading through your archive and I, I noticed that you wrote a celebration of Roger Ebert which I, I liked because you liked about Ebert what I liked, which is that his guide whenever you evaluate any product, and this is the same attitude I have toward wrestling or Hallmark movies or TV, right? Like take it on take it on the what it's trying to do and, and judge its success or failure in relation to its aspirations. Like not my aspirations for it, but what its aims are. And like even the women's division at that time, they showed that while not as proficient, you could watch these, you know, perfectly entertaining, sometimes really entertaining matches, like, and then they would just abandon it. And that was really frustrating, but you had that audience engagement and WWE didn't listen because it wanted to hold on to its begged questions about what, what drove the market. And I think that's kind of that erosion is what's happening in Hallmark movies now. And I think their original assumption wasn't wrong, right? Hallmark is a, it's a greeting card and decoration company. And if you're trying to make a lot of money, uh, selling really completely unnecessary things to people like, you know, $50 boxes of greeting cards, you're probably going to aim for middle to upper middle class white people because they're that's where the largest tranche of people with disposable income is going to be. But, uh, you know, as more people are watching these movies because they're genuinely entertaining in their own oddball kind of like uncanny valley way, and also as the white middle class is slowly being destroyed and everybody's kind of in the same boat, there is more of an economic and market incentive for them to include other people. And so I think what people sort of see about like the kayfabe and if you want to be more socioeconomically critical, racism and classism of Hallmark wasn't so much an overt declaration of like, well, we, we don't want people of color and we don't want urban people they were selling a particular kind of nostalgia to the largest market for that nostalgia. And as that market and its power dissipates and other players, other demographics, other identities enter the marketplace, it's starting to respond and say, you know what? We can't just run out. We can't run out a seven foot blonde who does a joke slam anymore. <laughs> we have to go find like a five foot one Latina who can do a hurricane Rana. <laughs> No, and that's totally what you see happen is that it's not that they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart, though I think someone like Stephanie McMahon having a prominent role definitely helped with the development of the women's division because you have a a female voice in the room. They're not doing this because it's good charity. They're doing it because they have tapped out the market for 
if not male fans, male stories in a lot of way at the level they do the WWE style. And you're getting to see them, if not replace the old storylines, tell new stories from a different perspective. But it's, it's again, it's just, it's in a, in a sad way and kind of like a late stage capital, it's feeding the beast of the WWE, but at least something good is going to come out of it in the same way that with the Hallmark movies, they're not doing this because they think it's like, good for the environment they're doing it because they know they can make more money if they have people of color in their stories and that's i don't i don't know and i guess we can end on this is that good enough for you or do you need some sort of moral like righteousness behind it or are you just happy to see people who aren't don't look like us in stories that you're watching because like that's important to me is to see different perspectives just no matter how they got there and it will not no matter how they got there but i concern my less self less with the machinations behind it as i do with the end result which will hopefully end up being people of color in producer roles writing on the show in prominent executive positions at Hallmark because of the need to expand their audience. How do you feel about that? As somebody who I would assume is not like super thumbs up on capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, on one hand, I kind of feel like what I think doesn't matter, right? You know, if, if I'm happy about it, I'm not the the demographic that's being underrepresented and deserves to be better represented. So I think if you, you see, you know, people of color, uh, you know, cultural commentators coming out and going like right on, then I'm just gonna be like what they said, you know? <laughs> um, but like my, my optimism is this is on a long timeline and, and my optimism is cer certainly tempered by the realities of capitalism and the realities of ownership and the fact that these are ad driven. I mean, it, you can't watch these and not see the products that are on it, that commercial in the movie. Uh, my, my personal beef right now, like just sort of, I'm not even sure how serious I am about it, was there's a, a podcast with a bunch of guys who are watching all the new Hallmark Christmas movies, and they got a whole flurry of press in, in starting with a profile in Southern Living, which like, lo and behold, Danielle Panabaker holds up right in front of the camera for like a two count uh, it, toward a person in the hospital and says, here, I got you your favorite magazine. Right. Like I understand, which is where the Truman show idea comes in. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new mo cocoa drink, all natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua. No artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and so like I, I already take a super dim view of it. I don't think we're going to see like realistic depictions of all, you know, the economic variances of being a person of color in the United States. We're certainly not in danger of seeing a Hallmark movie where somebody gets pulled over for like an investigatory stop or like I see your taillight is out. And then like the cop just keeps intruding more and more into the car until suddenly they're getting a cavity search and, and a gun is drawn on them, like which would be realistic, but it's not going to show up because it's a it's a commercial entertainment property. So I. I it's never going to go full realism in the same way that it's not even fully realistic about being white in America. Uh, and I don't think that we're even, I, I think we're at least five or 10 years out before they dare to show you like we're five years out from like a poor white family, you know, we're 10 years from like a poor black family. So just like, even, you know, even if it's a, a, a family of color and they're just in the most Martha Stewart ass, like household and, 
and community, just the fact that they're, you know, the, the network is willing to start fronting these people as like being a legitimate part of an America that everybody should be nostalgic for. And that sense that we are, when we go to a greeting card store and buy like cards and garland and like angel ornaments, like the idea that they are included within that Fantasia is, is fine by me. I mean, that's a good start and I'll take it. Yeah, it's definitely something I struggle with as a wrestling fan, especially like watching with friends who are people of color and you're just like, oh my God, Kamala. Like, or oh my, oh my God, Samba Simba. Or like Hakeem the African Dream, who's not even a black guy. Like, it's these... Yeah, you're, you're like, oh, check it out. Like, no, this, these are the best hoes in the Godfather's Ho Train. I love them. It's like, you can tell they're all local. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I remember I was watching with my wife and uh she saw the godfather and she was like she's usually like indifferent to wrestling she's like what the fuck is this <laughs> right <laughs> just like what the fuck and i'm like yeah this is why i stopped watching because like as someone uh who grew up it, like i said in a single parent house like the equality of women was an existential like i had to believe it for my own survival so like to see women objectified on television was like what the fuck this is horrifying and then going back it's even more horrifying because you realize it's just targeted like direct like a heat missile towards 17 year actually not even like 14 year old boys dicks like it's horrifying watching the shit and now that they've progressed i have this weird feeling of like are they doing this because it's a good thing to do or because it's economically viable and i guess like you said you just kind of have to like hope that they do right by the people involved and that eventually becomes a bigger and better thing yeah i mean well and they're perfectly good real life analogs to that like what was one of the the pressure points of the civil rights movement the fact that the soviet union could sit there and go like, yeah, you guys talk a good game about freedom, but you know, the South, (laughs) you know, like, and yeah, that's a cynical word. We, we externalized our domestic policy to take away, you know, a weapon and and the war for the hearts and minds or rather the, the war for the exploitation of, of Africa and Asia and, and, you know, colonial and struggling post-colonial nations. Like we didn't, we didn't do a good thing for good reasons, but it was a good thing. You know, like after, after the preceding century, I'll take it. Yeah, amen um so yeah uh, did you have anything you wanted to plug in particular uh before we head out uh you know if th- this is an interesting conversation for you listener please uh check us out on uh on facebook we're facebook.com slash it's christmas town or on apple podcast stitcher and google play we are dave and jeb aren't mean and thanks again jeb this was great thank you i really enjoyed this yeah that's right it's not even about it's not even about jesus it's about the holiday you gotta respect the holiday. We're gonna have to call it quits as our time is up on championship wrestling. It looks like that uh, they are outside the ring. This is Lance Russell from the Tupelo Sports Arena. Hey Mike, can you get the camera? They got a hell of a fight going on down there. See, can you get it down? Let me get the light stand off here. You know, we'll go back and edit this. Door. I know it. We'll edit it back in. Okay, can you get it rolling? What 
you're looking at is the wildest fight we've seen. Latham and Ferris and Dundee and Lawler in the concession stand, all four of them bleeding, pounded each other. Lawler, ooh, fired a gallon jug. They're banging away. Watch out, Mike. Dundee with Latham and Lawler with Ferris. Oh, there's mustard all over us. I hope it didn't get in the camera. Referee trying to get him stopped. So yeah, what we just heard there was something that's kind of become a How Wrestling Explains tradition, which is the beginning stages of the Tupelo concession stand brawl, which is a favorite of yours, right, Dave? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, one of, one of the, the best things that you can waste your time watching on the internet. And what's great about that, I think, uh, in terms of what Jeb and I talked about, and it's something I wanted to get into, which is the idea of, uh, and we mentioned it during the beginning of the interview, the the idea that 9-11 didn't happen um, <laughs> in the Hallmark universe. So basically what that means is that there's a lot of things that don't germinate as a result of that. And uh, hostilities between, uh, not that there's many brown people in these movies, but there's there's less of an underlying hostility towards certain groups of people. There's less of an overt conservatism that you see in modern life, but also simple things like not having to worry about whether or not somebody gets on the wrong plane would actually be a thing that was possible in real life in 2018, you can just have it happen or you can have people just randomly give other people plane tickets so they can meet them somewhere fabulous because they're truly, they're secretly a prince. Like these are things that actually happened in Hallmark movies that couldn't happen in a post 9-11 world. And what it reminds me of is this pre, I don't want to say pre, I guess, yeah, pre breaking of the fourth wall of, wrestling that you could have four people get into a brutal fight where property was damaged and all this other stuff and no one called the cops. It's just, it's different than what you see now where cops are involved in every, a segment, maybe every other month. Um, people are constantly bringing in legal uh, ramifications for the things they're doing where I don't want to say it was better but it was a much simpler time you could just have someone do something bad and it wouldn't you wouldn't need to like bring paper into this transaction oh no well it, i mean people did call the cops back in the territory days it, it was one of the ways that you knew that you'd really gotten a hot angle over and stuff like that i mean even even down to the days of like the horsemen and dusty roads in the late 80s there were people who were watching the TV shows and we're calling the the cops in whatever town the show was taking place in and telling them, you know, that, that an assault was taking place, et cetera, et cetera. But there was, but it was something that because the media scape was smaller and because things were smaller or of a smaller scale in general, it was really easy to like sweep under the rug or just to like call the police station ahead of time and say like, cause they, would work with the police for security details and stuff and just call and say like, Hey, we're doing a thing. And if you get some calls, it's fucking bullshit. You know what I mean? That like, yeah. that 
And they didn't turn around and have the cops come on television. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And, and you know, there, there was not this, like, mass army of fake cops at every television taping there just, just waiting to, to get involved in angles. Who look suspiciously like people that are in the development territory. <laughs> yes, yeah, suspiciously like young men between 18 and 22 with funny haircuts. <laughs> and really good builds for people <laughs> working desk jobs. Uh, but what you see is this idea that because wrestling is both understood to be fake and not fake, you can get away with levels of violence that would otherwise get away with in the sense of not having to actually engage with it as it's almost though as though wrestling and, and, and part of that is the smaller media landscape and the lack of connectivity. They exist kind of in a bubble at the time. And I, I think that bubble is kayfabe. Uh, like we talked about last episode, it's this kind of permeable membrane where some pe- whoever's in the know understands that part of the fun is being able to do shit like this. So adding in the system a thing that prevents you from doing shit like this is like inherently self-defeating as a narrative idea. But it's also the fact that they just didn't have to, they could just tell the cops like, listen, don't worry about it. Without it having to be a story that has to check every box for verisimilitude, I guess, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, I think definitely that if you look back like pre-Montreal Screwjob, I think things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, but pre-Montreal Screwjob, I think that the world of kayfabe was markedly simpler than the real world. And I think that that's kind of where some of the old stereotypes about wrestling and about wrestling fans kind of came from, was there was this world where, as you say, like it was all about consequences and stakes, but like the way consequences were doled out and the scale of stakes seemed so unlike the rest of the world that it was that it was jarring you know what i mean and i think that that was a really like empowering and freeing space for wrestlers and bookers like even if you think of like the early 90s if you th- we've talked about the angle with larry zbisco and arn anderson slamming uh barry windham's hand in the car before and like in wrestling that's really dastardly and evil and mean and the fans don't get to see Barry Windham who they love and and Barry Windham has to wear a cast but like in the real world like that is horrific like his hand is going to be like mangled in a way that's uncomfortable to look at and like the surgery that it's not just going to be like oh he has a broken hand and it needs to be fixed it's like no the surgery to fix his hand is going to make it look different for the rest of his life and affect his ability to use his hand for the rest of his life. So like that sense of the difference in stakes was always there. And I think that the wrestling world used to be a slightly simpler world. I think that created more possibilities, but now, like I said, 20 years post Montreal Screwjob, post Vince McMahon as a character, I think the expectations, fan expectations for the kayfabe world have like caught up and gotten closer to the real world closer to verisimilitude in some ways, as you have said. And I think that the, the imbalance is, is really what's causing a lot of the friction between fans and the WWE right now. While it's a really great pairing, Austin McMahon is, and you mentioned Vince McMahon as kind of the start of this as a television character, are the ones that broke kayfabe in that sense or not kayfabe they broke the understanding within kayfabe that you don't call the cops like stitches 
snitches get stitches. And McMahon being attacked by his employee and calling the cops totally makes sense. Like that is a totally realistic reaction to one of your employees physically assaulting you repeatedly after you asked him to do things for you under the basis of your contract or uh, agreement, handshake agreement, I believe at the time. It's your thousand dollars for five dates. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then we'll, we'll be able to make money together. Um, Yeah. There's this idea that Austin couldn't constantly fight McMahon. So he had to fight against the, all of the trappings of that authority, that power that, Vince McMahon had. And a manifestation of that is all of the times that Austin was let out in handcuffs or beat up a bunch of cops. But it it's a thing where it worked for Austin, but when you have it for every subsequent character that starts a problem with the McMahons, but then when they beat the shit out of like a, a normal non-McMahon person brutally in a way that they would like go to jail for the rest of the like way beyond the pale of the Barry Windham getting felony, getting caught up in a felony assault by Larry Sabisco and Arn Anderson. Like it's, they're like literally attempted murders and things like that, that you see. And what Austin and McMahon did is they kind of made it so that you had to either completely ignore that and go back to a world where like cops don't exist. It'd be like if the wild West happened and then civilization happened and then they went back to the wild West is basically what you're forced to, you have to make that choice you have to go back to the frontier of just like we don't care what we're, we don't care that Roman Reigns for instance tried to murder Braun Strowman or that Braun Strowman flipped over an ambulance with a human being inside of it they're not going to jail it's just wrestling and i think part of the reason that feels ridiculous is not just that they're flipping over ambulances it's that Austin and McMahon said, no, you have to have these people have consequences that are legal or something close to it. Yeah, definitely. And I think also we are we are getting at that that fine line distinction between professional wrestling and quote unquote sports entertainment, because I think part I think that they have a fundamentally or they have fundamentally different kayfabes. There's kind of a split head in certain ways where it's like the professional wrestling mentality and the professional wrestling version of the world is that what matters most is the matches in the ring. Like that the matches are what settle the issues ultimately. Like even if a dude smashes your hand in a car door, the way you get revenge is ultimately by beating him in a match in the middle of the ring. You know what I mean? That like the matches are the most important thing and the progress towards the most, the titles are the most important thing. And people make progress towards the titles through winning matches. But on the other hand, there's the kind of sports entertainment kayfabe, which is slightly different where really the, the, the goal of the universe is just to exist in the universe, like to to quote unquote Mm -hmm. entertain the people and put smiles on faces and like rotate up and down and, and just be there for as long as possible and like be a meaningful part of the show. And I think that's one of the reasons why WWE is kind of, in my opinion, in a crisis point is they, they came to that fork in the road and they really took the road less traveled. Like pro wrestling is a pretty well-defined thing over the last 50 years. And they said, we're going to take this other approach. And now they're like miles and miles down that forked path and they're like lost suddenly 
whereas the other path was much more traveled, much less spectacular, and possibly less of a global money-making venture, but like at least a more defined space with defined tools that you can use to keep the rudder in the water. Yeah, you can either take what worked about, and, and I think this is the distinction we talked about earlier between like a Hallmark movie and a romantic comedy, that romantic comedy is that pro wrestling, that thing that's grounded in a real conception of not necessarily how people live their lives, but like of a set of rules in a universe with a sense of physics to itself, where sports entertainment and and, and Hallmark movies are just the bright lights big city version of it where it's all about getting it's about hitting your marks and not understanding that like slightly missing your mark and actually telling a story that has real uh pathos to it can benefit you in a way that will long term be healthier for the product as opposed to making it all about the ending of the story like making it so that these two people get together no matter what no matter how many different ways you have to stop them from getting together that would normally like keep them from just you know like keep them keep them apart WWE has to and I think they're starting to I do um I am an apologist so you know bark up a tree of somebody who gives a shit but I think that they are starting to with the women's division which we've talked a lot about the past couple of weeks really go back to that professional wrestling style storyline where it's about being the champ. It's about being quote unquote, the man it's about being in this world and creating something in this world, as opposed to trying to like build it on this platform. That's easily accessible to anybody that has any interest in entertainment or sports or soap operas or all it's people fighting to be the best in a literal and figurative sense. With pee-pee jokes. With pee-pee jokes, but I mean... Not that that's the women's stuff, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. The women's stuff is excellent, and as I as I stipulated the other week, Nick, I said, we can talk about modern wrestling all you want as long as we only talk about women. Yeah, and I, I tried to keep that <laughs> for you, David. Um, so now that we've solved uh, the future of Hallmark movies and wrestling, uh, I wanted to start, before we get into the plugs, by thanking Jeb for uh, his time for the interview. Uh, I'm sorry it sounded like a nightmare, uh, but there was a problem with my microphone. We have fixed it, so that's good. Uh, and going forward, everything should be fine. But yeah, I, I really wanted to thank him. He took time out of what I assume is a busy schedule to talk with me for an hour about stupid wrestling shit. So uh, thanks. Um, and uh, did you have anything in particular you wanted to plug this week, David? Well, first, I just want to jump onto your plug and say that uh, prior to hearing about this upcoming appearance, I had never listened to Dave and Jeb Art Mean, and I checked it out uh, in anticipation of hearing your interview with Jeb, and I dug the hell out of it. I really, really strongly recommend people uh, check out that most recent episode, uh, 39. The, the title is 9-11 Never Happened. It, it's it's really, really good. It was something that I don't want to say I was expecting not to like it, but I was expecting not to get it, and like 12 minutes in, I got it so hard and, and really enjoyed the, the following hour. Definitely an excellent listen. So make sure you listen to their show and uh, thanks so much to Jeb again. And thanks so much to you, Nick, for conducting that excellent uh, interview. I suppose I forgive you for two-timing as previously established. (laughs) 
As for my own personal plugs, uh, you should follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk, where uh, you can uh, follow me and hear all sorts of thoughts from my brain about wrestling or sports or literature or uh, cartoons or all sorts of other terrible stuff. Uh, in addition to that, of course, as usual, I recommend that you check out patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. Uh, it is, of course, that holiday giving season. And in the spirit of the Hallmark Christmas movies or the Hallmark movies in general, it would be a great time for you to dig down deep into your heart, your soul and your money bag and fork over $2 per month. If you could just commit to $2 per month for the 12 months of 2019, you would really be doing a hell of a job keeping us afloat in terms of support. You would be helping us pay the bills and you would be helping us make long-term investments in terms of uh, audio quality and also helping us you know, build time to make the show better and better. The more money that comes in, the more time we can devote to doing this. As of right now, I record the shows with Nick and I write those follow-up files and that takes a couple of hours. And other than that, that's like really all the time I have to dedicate to this each week because I have to pay the bills. But if we get more money in the coffers, uh, we can devote more time to content creation. So as we head into 2019 and as it is the holiday season, I implore you to consider uh, putting us under your Christmas tree or your uh, menorah or your Kwanzaa table of uh, plenty and uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, and think about making a contribution at that $2 level for 2019. It would really go a super long way. That's the end of this plug. <laughs> uh, and you can check me out at the Knicks there. The, Jesus Christ. What, was it super Long Island last time? It was the, yeah, it was. It was. It was the, the Knicks. The. The yeah, it was like the, from, from the E in the through the R in her. It was, it was all Long Island. It was great. Uh, and you can check me out at the Knickster. That's T H E N 1 C K S T E R. Um, you can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com or you can rate, review, and subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and Pocket Casts. Um, I guess I, all I have to say is uh, fuck you if you don't like Christmas. I flash back to my friend H.T. Cowell. He has a very interesting approach to writing, which I don't think he'd mind if I shared with you. Think of a Christmas tree as a story you're living or the story you're wanting to tell. A string of lights illuminates our path. Each bulb is a plot point or meaningful event in our lives. Ornaments are the characters and concepts, giving the tree personality. And the angel is our clear point of view from above that lets us peek into the lives of others. Which just leaves the gifts under the tree. And the gifts are what each person takes away from what we create. Our gift to them. Misinformed, but we have for you to bite your tongue.